Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Can you put up a fight during an alien abduction experience? Once it's happened, where can you turn for help? What is alien abduction anyway? Hello and welcome to or welcome aboard to the 818th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I am Ben and those out of this world questions came from my co-host, partner in paranormal adventures and dad, Paul. And uh, today we tackle a difficult subject with an old friend and we welcome your calls today. The number is 401-766-1240. That is from anywhere or you can email paul at behindtheparanormal.com or contact us uh, via Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Kathleen Marden is a leading UFO researcher, the author of several books, uh, featured on-camera commentator and an international lecturer. She holds a bachelor's degree in social work and was an educator and education services coordinator. Kathleen is a master-level practitioner of the quantum healing hypnosis technique. Her interest in UFOs and contact began in 1961 when her aunt and uncle, Betty and Barney Hill, had a close encounter and subsequent abduction in New Hampshire's White Mountains. She has been the Mutual UFO Network's Director of Experiencer Research since 2011 and is on the board of the dire- board of directors of the Edgar Mitchell Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial and Extraordinary Encounters, or FREE for short. She has appeared on this show many times. Three of Kathleen's books were co-written with the late nuclear physicist and scientific ufologist Stanton Friedman, Captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, Science Was Wrong, and Fact, Fiction, and Flying Saucers. A fourth book, The Alien Abduction Files, features Denise Stoner's contribution. Uh, her fifth book is Extraterrestrial Contract, Contact, What to Do When You've Been Abducted. I've just been dealing with too many contractors lately, so contract. Extraterrestrial Contact, uh, What to Do When You've Been Abducted. Uh, that was released in September and will be uh, the center of our discussion today. Uh, her website is Kathleen-Marden.com, and she joins us, joins us today via Skype. So, Kathleen Martin, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. Oh, it's always great to have you on. It's been, I feel like it's like every six months-ish we have you on. It's not enough. Mm, no, Probably no, about that, yeah. <laughs> but it's always nice to talk to both of you. Yeah, it's all, we always learn something new every time. There's always something new going on. Mm. So with that, let's begin with a question that must be on the minds of many listeners. And if I'm lying snug in my bed tonight and I'm suddenly floating among a bunch of little gray men, what's happening and what do I do? Well, it sounds like you're being abducted, and if you're already floating in the air and you're paralyzed, then um, all you can do is try to send telepathic messages uh, to say, put me back, put me down, Uh, I don't want to do this, you do not have permission. Interesting. So in 2012, you led a research project uh, to find commonalities among experiencers, and you've been part of at least two major research projects on this and uh, yes. have published many articles about it. Uh, so what are the common traits among experiencers of abduction? Well, what we have found from the three major studies that we've done is that experiencers change. Uh, they uh, become more intelligent, they believe, uh, and I think this is backed up by a level of knowledge that they acquire that they didn't learn here. Uh, they also become more psychic or intuitive. 
they become empathic. And I'm not talking about the bad side of being empathic, the, you know, the major depression or that kind of thing. It isn't that. It is being able to feel another person's emotions, sometimes being able to feel even disease in that person's body, to be aware that that person is ill. And some of these experiencers, uh, especially among the abductee group, uh, has actually acquired the ability to uh, promote healing in sick people, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, also, uh, there is a sense of being part of something much greater than just your family or your small town or your community. It's kind of a, a universal feeling of consciousness that you now belong to. Um, experiencers also have the generally the ability to detect when they are going to be taken. They might uh, hear a kind of buzzing sound in their heads, and and it's not tinnitus. Uh, they might uh, receive a telepathic message that uh, it's their night, or uh, they might just sense kind of a feeling of nervousness that something is going to happen and then it does on that particular night okay uh, actually we have a question from terry in uxbridge massachusetts it says does that telepathic put me down thing really work (laughs) (laughs) it works for some people in the uh, in my new book extraterrestrial contact uh, i listed uh, the 12 suggestions that you might use if you want this to end. Yeah, they, Ben's holding the book up right now. Yeah. yeah, they work for some people. I can't guarantee it's going to work for everybody. But you know, one of the things is the idea that you made a contract to have this happen uh, before you came into this lifetime. Dolores Cannon did a great deal of work on that, and she is the person who developed the quantum healing hypnosis technique. And so uh, some people have stated that they want to end the contract, and uh, they haven't been taken any longer. Hmm. Uh, Something I've been recommending for years that has worked for some people is simply to say, you know, I need a reprieve. I need a break. Leave me alone. And it works for some people. Um, one thing that I asked for as, as an experiencer of all of this, and I didn't want my sleep to be interrupted. I needed my sleep. And I said, if you have to take me, don't let me wake up. Just let me sleep through it. And so I don't know if I'm being taken now or not, uh, but if I am, I'm sleeping through it. So this indicates <clears throat> perhaps a certain amount of compassion on the part of whoever's doing this that they're not usually given credit for. Am I wrong? That's correct. All right. How do you interpret that? And we know that some of these non-human entities are much nicer than others. Uh, the Those who are kind of in the draconian reptilian 
uh, type are not at all nice. Mm. Uh, they uh, people of, are being abused. They're being raped. Uh, they. I'm. I'm not even certain that these are extraterrestrials. I. They seem like negative entity attachments. Yeah. Well, uh, to well, me, yeah. after studying this for you know so many years, uh, if it's a gray group, there are different types of gray groups too, and some are more compassionate than others, depending upon who they're working with. But you can, you know, it's it's a type of gray um, that has taken my family. Betty and Barney Hill, my mother, myself, uh, over many, many years. And so they have not done to us what the horrible things that other people have reported. So Mm -hmm. I think different groups have different agendas. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the second most prevalent group, the most prevalent group is the grace. The second most prevalent group are human types. And they look very much like us. Uh, they might be a little taller. Their eyes might be a little larger. They're telepathic. Uh, but they're the ones who are considered to be the most compassionate. Yet I have worked on cases where the experiencers who were taken were suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and had to work through that before we were even able to do hypnosis where they found out that these were compassionate people who had known them through their lifetime Mm -hmm. and were were just giving them information and visiting with them. So this is very complex. It's much more complex than I ever believed that it would be when I started my investigation and the research that I've done over the past 30 years. On this. Well, certainly uh, our paths have merged uh, many ways. We've, the three of us have spoken at, at a number of the same conferences over the past, goodness, 10 years. And uh, we, we hear you absolutely when it comes to the, what we refer to as crossover phenomena. Um, and it's funny, you know, uh, when I speak on the subject, people say, aha, his seminary background, he's going to say that all aliens are really demons. Well, I think, and, and you and I have talked about this many times, I think that very often the, the things we consider to be demons are in fact aliens, you know, from, from I don't a, think a point that. of view. <laughs> I don't take that point of view. Mm-hmm. I, I know, that's I why have, I brought it up. <laughs> I have the point of view is that uh, we misinterpret some of these negative parasitic entities from the astral realm as extraterrestrials mm. but they are shape-shifting they don't look exactly like extraterrestrials they have a different agenda they feed off human fear they feed off human suffering that's not those aren't extraterrestrial scientists those oh no! When, are, I, when I say alien, I don't mean extraterrestrial necessarily. I mean in a very, very okay. broad definition of other. Oh, okay. You know. okay. Because when I think of alien, I'm thinking of extraterrestrial. Oh no, no, no! But maybe uh, we haven't talked enough about that. <laughs> but I, I, and I wrote about this in the chapter of extraterrestrial contact, mm. uh, where 
I, I wrote about what causes some of these uh, attachments to occur and uh, where this is coming from and uh, the way t- different suggestions on how to get rid of this. And, and if it is indeed an attachment, if there is nothing scientific going on here, if these entities are simply feeding off human emotions, then uh, you can, I think, more easily have them detached. And, and you know about this through shaman, mm-hmm. through uh, people who uh, are religious figures who can remove these kinds of attachments and and make this kind of thing end. But I think that they're, in my opinion, two different things. One is scientific. Uh, one is attempting to upgrade the human genome. They talk about the reasons that they're here, and those reasons are because they say that uh, our technology is out of sync with our spiritual development and they're afraid that this could lead to the disintegration of our species. The other type, the other end of that, just wants to attach to you and and feed off your pain, off your suffering. Mm-hmm. They, they're not scientific at all. Those are just, in my opinion, uh, the entities from the astral realm who will come into human environment and and take attached to a, whoever they can and there are cer- certain human behaviors that will make you a more desirable feast and those are lowering your vibrational frequency which only means uh, becoming depressed uh, through the use of opioids through the abuse of alcohol it's these kinds of behaviors that will attract these entities. Now, I couldn't have put it better. I mean, this this is cropping up all over the place. And there was a very chilling question that arises. And I'm jumping ahead of our, our scripted questions here. But we sometimes in our darkest moments will wonder, is it possible that, uh, give, speaking of the human genome, and we have these 223 genes that shouldn't be there, were we messed with at some point or even quote-unquote created to be cattle, to be a food source for these entities that you've described so well, uh, but on the other hand, being assisted by other species who are either in the same boat or have risen above that. I mean, it's, it's wild speculation, but somehow it seems to be in the background of, of much that, that, that we investigate. I mean, what say you? Well, <laughs> that is really, to me, complete speculation. Sure. And I have to say, just as my dear friend Stanton Friedman used to say, it's in my gray basket. I don't know <laughs> the right. answer. I can hear him saying, yeah. Those questions. Yeah, you know, exactly. it's, it's speculation. I, I don't know. Okay. Well, that's as honest an answer as we can get. Okay. Uh, on the matter of the grays, they do seem to be rather ubiquitous in this entire scenario. Do you think, uh, as Nigel Kerner suggests, that these could be biomechanical beings in the sense of, you know, uh, not necessarily 
operating entirely independently of someone else? Well, what I have to say from the th- uh, 5,000 experiencers that we have uh, spoken with in the three major studies, and then another couple of thousand that I have spoken to on top of that, uh, it appears that there are two separate groups of greys. One of those groups, the ones who are the assistants, the ones who undress people and dress people and um, do the menial labor and also make sure that you don't get off the craft with anything that belongs to them, might be biomechanical um, because they stand against a wall They only move when told to do so. Uh, Why, and, and, you know, here I'm putting my human uh, interpretation on all of this, but it makes sense that you would have these menial labor uh, people be biomechanical or mechanical, artificial intelligence, uh, because you don't have to feed them. You don't have to provide a place for them to excrete waste. You don't have to worry about problems when they interact with one another. You can just turn them on or turn them off. But I also am convinced that some of these who have the more important jobs, the scientists, the physicians, the uh, interpreters, the communicators, those who connect, conduct the experiments, for example, are in uh, sentient beings. They have a much higher level of intelligence, and the experiencers are interpreting them as being sentient beings, as being alive. Well, if any of the greys are willing to rake leaves, uh, you have my phone number, Kathy. <laughs> right. Go ahead, Ben. So let's let's take a like a little, little step back. Um, and kind of go. I, I wanted to kind of probe, pardon the pun, a little bit more into um, the different groups of, of extraterrestrials that you've sort of run into in your research. So, from your research, how many different groups of ET have you have you found that you know either perform abductions, perform research, or or however however it's it, it is interpreted? And which ones are, I guess, in very plain terms. The nice ones, and which ones are the bad ones, or which ones are the neutral ones? Okay. Oh, that's pretty complicated. But, okay, the from our research, there are four major groups and many minor groups. The four major groups are the greys, the human types, and next, the insectoid mantis types, a third, and then reptilians are fourth. Now, there are subgroups within this, as I said, um, subgroups within the greys uh, are the taller ones who are five, five and a half feet tall, mm-hmm. and then the shorter ones who uh, are only about three and a half, four feet tall and who just do the menial labor. Among the human types, uh, what people are seeing is people who look a lot like us, they might be taller than humans, especially me at five feet tall. <laughs> um, they have uh, larger eyes than humans. They tend uh, to 
wear their hair longer, kind of on the longer side. Uh, men pulled back, women pulled back as well. The men are wearing blue suits. The women uh, sometimes wear blue or sometimes wear an opalescent kind of, of suit. Um, they are known as being kinder to the human types um, or, or to humans. Um, and some of them say that they lived on this planet in our very distant past and there was an environmental collapse. Uh, they had the technology and the means to leave this planet uh, not many people were able to escape. Most of them just stayed here. But they found another planet, and now they travel through space. They say that they can uh, jump through time and space, uh, that they live on these ships for much of the time, traveling from here to there. They say they don't take from this planet but they come back from time to time to try to assist in our development. Hmm. Uh, they And then there are uh, the insectoid types who are probably five and a half to six and a half feet tall. Um, they look like a lot like a praying mantis. I even have some photographs experiencers have been able to capture of these things where they're, they're like they have, you can see my, my hands, they have these long things that come out in front of them and uh, they uh, work with a shorter gray type as well. And uh, David Jacobs, for example, hypothesizes that this is only uh, a higher level of gray, only it looks like an in insect. He calls them insectolins. And uh, they perform experiments with humans. They uh, appear to be the physicians. They have a high level of authority on the craft higher than the greys where they are seen but there are many people who are just in contact with the grey group and not with the insectoids or the mantis types and the greys for example Denise Stoner who I wrote about and she wrote about herself too in the alien abduction files uh, one of the books that we've written that I've written uh, is one of those who has had contact with the insectoids and the gray groups from the time she was a child uh, the Tom Reed and Matthew Reed case from Massachusetts um, from uh, Western Mass. Yeah, that was what I first thought when you said insectoids, actually. Yeah, me too, yes. actually. I mean, his illustrations of these, yeah. Yes, that is the same group that uh, apparently Denise has had contact with. They're, they're not as nice. They've been, they have not treated Denise or Tom or others as nicely as just the gray group of, of uh, non-humans who are taking people. Um, unfortunately, they they seem to uh, value humans less, I think, or uh, to be less concerned about humans. Okay. Then we move on to the 
reptilian type. And many people who have had contact with almost a snakeskin-like reptilian uh, say that they've been pretty nice. They, They have not been abusive. They have not attached to them. They have not raped them. They... You know, they're just doing the same kind of program that the greys are doing. But then you have this other group of reptilians that I mentioned before who are the draconian reptilians who look like alligators, who have scales, who have uh, even a long tail, are a type that appears to be more of a negative Attachment. Okay. Then mm. the, um, it, it kind of frustrates me because I'm not absolutely certain of this, but there's there are so many shapeshifters among this kind of group, and and I've been told that they hold greys as captives and hold human types as captives too. So I I'm not an expert on that type at all. But I will say that is information that I have received over many years from many individuals. Okay. Uh, We're going to take our bottom of the hour break. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful but chilly Blackstone Valley. We'll be right back. Casey Kasem has unlocked the American Top 40 vaults and is replaying original shows from the 80s. This week, Casey takes you back to November 12, 1983. That's when Billy Joel was in love with an uptown girl. Air Supply was making love out of nothing at all. Lionel Richie was partying all night long. And Men Without Hats were doing the safety dance. You'll hear those songs, all the top 40 hits, and the long-distance dedications from November 12, 1983, right here on American Top 40, the 80s. Local and live at 99.5 FM. And welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Paul, and our guest today is our good friend and fascinating uh, researcher and conversationalist, Kathleen Marden. Now, uh, Kathy, let's uh, get back into our questions here. I wanted to... um, from your extensive research with experiencers uh, and a number of different projects, is loss of memory always a factor? Or, in other words, uh, uh, is there a percentage you can give us of people whose memory has been uh, erased or an attempt has been made to erase the memory after an abduction experience? Well, what happens is that most experiencers do remember part of it. They uh, have either seen a craft and they've seen non-humans in association with the craft. Now, that's a smaller percentage now than it used to be. Um, most people are taken from their homes now and most of them remember at least a light coming into their room. They remember non-human entities and uh, they then suffer Paralysis, and let me let me just uh, give you some statistics on that. Uh, on Mufon's study of 516 experiencers, we asked two questions, and I'm going to pick up my notes here. Um, we asked, uh, "Have you 
uh, been sleeping and then experienced paralysis and felt that you were taken. Uh, 90% of the abductee group and 74% of the experiencers overall, which means everybody who took part in this uh, study, said that they had this happen. Then we said, the next question, were you awake and then did non-human entities come into your environment and then did you become paralyzed? And on that, 60% of the abductee group had had that happen. So they were awake, they observed this, they're at least aware of part of the experience. And many are aware of uh, winding up on a table on a craft, too. But among the all of the people who took part in our study, only 36% had been wide awake. So then, then you bring up, was it sleep paralysis? Was this just a sleep hallucination? You don't know. Uh, but among those who have the characteristics of having UFO abduction syndrome, as was determined by the American Personality Inventory, which was administered by Dr. Don C. Dondary, mm-hmm. a much larger percentage, that, experience, that abductee group had conscious recall of all of this at a very high level. Okay. Was the memory erased deliberately, do you think? Again, this is speculation. Erased deliberately by the abductors, or was it simply a part of the process of abduction and uh, was not deliberate? Or do we, do we even have any indication of that? Uh, again, that's speculative. Yes. I I have learned that people are taken into uh, what is a, a very powerful electromagnetic field. And I have done experiments where I have actually, in in an experiment, learned to communicate with a non-human. And when I was communicating with this non-human who was allegedly an extraterrestrial, I felt a very strong tingling through my body, kind of an electromagnetic shocking tingling. I was able to communicate, but... It's lucky that I was recording this because if I hadn't, after this communication ended, I had no memory of what was said. So, very that's kind of strange. So I don't know. Yeah, and I don't know if I mean people say that uh, something like a wand is pointed at them, and their memory is lost at that point. But I, I just wonder if it is the uh, strong electromagnetic fields that cause that. And again, it's in my gray basket. I don't have an answer to that question. So because of these strong electromagnetic shifts, we, we sort of, we all kind of have a nodding familiarity with how electromagnetism can affect a human being's not only brain, but body. So my, my question is coming from this, this sort of area. So have there ever been any sort of physical examinations, you know, whether it was on someone's brain, uh, you know, DNA structure, a- anything like that that would lead to a sort of mental, emotional, and spiritual shift 
after the abduction experience? I don't think that it's done on the craft. My speculation is that experiencers develop the same characteristics as near-death experiencers because when they are taken into an interdimensional portal during this transport uh, where they are passing through solid surfaces, something is done to the human body, to the atomic structure of the human body. And remember that 99.9% of the atom is empty space. So when those, when that atomic structure is energized and the human body starts to come apart to go into this interdimensional portal, then it appears scientifically the explanation for that is that the human soul or consciousness separates from the body temporarily and as a person is taken to craft and then returned to the human environment. And so my speculation, and and I've talked to scientists about that who agree that they, they think that is probably what is happening, is that it's just the, the soul or the consciousness being separated from the human body put back just as it is during a near-death experience. So that being, that being said, even even those who have, have negative experiences, let's say with the draconian reptilian races, do they come back with those same sort of changes? No, they do not. Hmm. They don't. Interesting. It is interesting. Well, uh, Kathy, there's a, um, a chapter in your book, uh, Extraterrestrial Contact, that I found particularly interesting. And it has to do with uh, what social researchers have found in this realm um, as far as um, the contact and abduction. Can you talk uh, a, a little bit about that, please? Yes. Uh, there have been a number of academic studies done on researcher on I mean, <laughs> on abductees. And what the studies have discovered uh, is that most experiencers are just uh, mentally stable individuals. They don't have psychiatric disorders. Uh, however, there is a higher level of post-traumatic stress disorder or, um, you know, not people becoming psychotic or anything like that, that the people have a higher level of anxiety as a result of the experiences that they have had. And we've had three omega-3 studies. Um, two were done by professors at uh, the University of Connecticut, uh, last names Ring and Rosen. Mm -hmm. And uh, what they discovered in their academic study is what I have been explaining on this show that experiencers uh, undergo. The personality changes, the becoming more psychic, more intuitive. Um, even what Ring and Rosen did is they took uh, people who are abductees, they also had near-death experiencers, and then they had control groups. 
and they discovered that the near-death experiencers and the abductees had the same characteristics, only the abductees had a higher level of trauma um, than the near-death experiencers. Hmm. So that being said, what would you say is sort of the first step to post-traumatic growth rather than post-traumatic stress? Well, I think that, and what I advise people who are traumatized by their experiences it are, they. I recommend that they go to a licensed uh, psychologist or social worker, whoever it is uh, who is giving mental health treatment, to have EMDR therapy. That's the therapy that is being used effectively with people who have experienced uh, trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder. And it helps to uncover some of the experiences that they've had. They're not going to uh, remain ignorant about what is going on on the craft. They will remember some of it. And once they get over their trauma, if they want to go further with hypnosis, then they can go much further with that. Uh, and you won't have the kind of blocks that so many people have who are suffering from trauma, where they you, you just reach a, a block, and when the hypnotist uh, tries to break down that block that they have, they might just wake up and sit up and and that's it, no more. Sometimes the hypnotist can can actually work through that bl- block and open up some more memory. But for those people that I've worked with who have had EMDR therapy and have worked through the post-traumatic stress, then uh, we can open up a much larger picture of what actually happened on the craft, what was stated. Um, they can uh, get a much better description of all of it without having to work through the trauma that was initially associated with it. Okay. I have a question that I've got to ask, but first I want to give you a chance to talk about your website, your books, where people can find out more, where people can get the books. Oh, I'd be happy to. My website is Kathleen with a K, K K-A-T-H-L-E-E-N, then a dash or hyphen, Marden, M-A-R-D-E-N dot com. My five books are available on my website. You can purchase them using PayPal, and you will get my autograph. And if you want me to personalize it, just write to me and let me know that um, also. Um, You can also purchase my books from Amazon or Barnes & Noble, uh, online orders uh, are available as softcover books, as ebooks, and as audiobooks as well. So many different formats. You can also go to my website and read some free material that I've put up there. And also you can see what conferences I'll be speaking at. I generally do about 10 to a dozen conferences a year. Oh, yeah, you're always on the go. <laughs> uh, when we had our bizarre UFO sighting in Pennsylvania in May, uh, I was in contact with you 
about what could have been a missing time experience that took place for me after that. Now, why they would want an old horse like me, I have no idea. They want if, your bow ties. If, that's they, <laughs> if that's what that's got to be, a, if that's what it was, and it may may have been just a mistake on my part. But you suggested something that we mentioned in your bio, and that was quantum healing hypnosis. Can you tell us uh, what that is? We spoke about it, but the listeners, I'm sure, would love to know. Yes. Well, the quantum healing hypnosis technique was developed by a brilliant woman named Dolores Cannon. She lived in Arkansas, and she started out as a hypnotist when her husband was in the military. Her husband and she both did hypnosis, um, and they would work on smoking cessation and weight loss and that kind of thing. But over the years, uh, well, her husband became disabled. He had a terrible accident. And so she went and supported the family on her own. But over the years, she started to learn more and more about doing past life regressions. And she developed quantum healing hypnosis technique as uh, a way of benefiting people by doing past life regressions. But then she was asked to help MUFON out and to do some of this with people who had had abductions. And she found that it worked very well with abductees as well. The difference between quantum healing hypnosis and regular hypnosis is that it's really a full day session. When the person comes in, they spend three to five hours just talking about their experiences, about their life. They bring 10 to 15 questions that they would like to have answered. And they also bring healing requests. And it's quite remarkable because then after you're finished with that interview, you go into a, a hypnosis session that lasts for a couple of hours. Uh, you're visiting your UFO experiences, your abductions, or maybe a past life experience too that can, can be combined. Uh, and then at the end of the hypnosis session, the quantum healing hypnosis technique practitioner uh, accesses your higher self that Dolores called the subconscious or the SC. It's not what we think of as the subconscious mind. And at that point, the person begins to speak to the practitioner in the third person. And the questions are asked and the answers are given. And then... uh, the quantum healing hypnosis practitioner asks for for healing for these things in the person's body. And we generally do that by doing a body scan from head to toe. And we ask the subconscious uh, when they are finished, we'll do point by point, the crown chakra, the third eye, the throat chakra, and so on and so forth. The subconscious goes to those areas that have been impacted by disease, for example, or even in arthritis, the degeneration, and ask for healing. And when the healing request is granted, then the person is healed as well. And it's quite remarkable um, that 
when I'm doing this, I feel a great deal of energy the, uh, through the crown chakra, uh, that tingling sensation again, and then out through my hands that I'm holding over the person's body. I just do that naturally. And I am amazed to hear that these individuals have actually been healed of things like uh, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, brain tumors, cancer, um, just a number of things, even emotional uh, problems that the person has had, skin conditions. It's, it's really amazing that this process kind of contacts the higher self that I actually think of as God because I'm a Christian and I believe that that it's God who's doing the healing. But uh, some people think that it's just the person's consciousness that is, is doing the healing. But whatever it is, uh, many people have been healed through this process. Okay, and, and you offer the, you do this yes, I do. yourself. Okay, people yes, can find out more through your website? Yes. Okay, Thank all you. right, good. Um, when does, now I'm asking you to draw some lines here from our own narrow paradigm, when does contact become abduction? Because there, there are many examples of contact that apparently don't involve abduction. So, Absolutely. I mean, in contact, you could have uh, contact through meditation, contact through a CE5 experiment where you're trying to call in the craft, um, contact uh, through channeling, uh, all sorts of contact. But that is not involving uh, what appears to be a scientific study or involving upgrading the human genome or anything like that. So abduction, what we think of as abduction is when, and it usually starts during childhood, 75% of those cases were less than 20 years old when they were taken for the first time. It's generational and uh, it involves the manipulation of our DNA and experiments as well on probably testing their work uh, because they seem to be manipulating uh, the offspring that the humans give birth to. And those offspring are born with very special kind of gifts too. Mm. So you know, they're, they're just a different, they're what Mary Rodwell calls the new humans, a different kind of human. A little boy who was dying of um, leukemia, childhood leukemia in the 90s, refer, he was five years old. He refer, I learned more from him, and you've heard me talk about this, I'm sure, in lectures. Yes, uh, yes. He referred to the high men and the low men, or the high people and the low people. And <laughs> what you just said kind of put me in mind of that. But just to, I, I don't, we're almost out of time, I've got a million more questions, but <laughs> in reference to our UFO I suppose, uh, sighting, if you want to call it contact in May in Pennsylvania, we used a technique and I would, if had this not happened to us, I never would have thought of this question. Do you find a relationship between music and or tones and 
any sort of attracting contact of some kind because I, I'm thinking of frequencies that people are always talking about. I mean, because we pl- I played music by uh, I, I don't know if I would even discuss this with you, but by uh, Mor- uh, Morton Lawrence, an American composer, very haunting stuff. Some of it liturgical. Uh, others and uh, Shane Searway used tones from Mount Shasta, and all this stuff started to happen. I mean, have you encountered anything like that before, and how would that work? Absolutely, in in the CE five CE fives that I've taken part in, mm-hmm. um, not led by me, led by others who are able to contact these craft and bring them in. Uh, oftentimes, it involves meditation. It involves tones of various types, even playing uh, brass bowls that um, Mm. filled with various levels of water, Um, uh, and also sometimes reading Sanskrit. It it somehow apparently draws in these craft. Have there been responses in in a tonal form? In other words. yeah, you've heard the story. We, we had the sighting, and then the next night, after we, we'd done this again, uh, some there was a tone, a perfect C, that was in the air over our heads. It would let us out of a... This is about quarter past one of them. Let us... Uh, and this, this is... We're talking about six people here. Let us mm-hmm. outside, Was went up into the air, was moving around, and then disappeared into the sky. I mean, I mean, that was... It, could that have been a response? I suppose it could have been... Uh, my aunt used to talk about things like that, that one time when she had a close encounter with a craft, she heard church bells huh. coming from that craft. So, I mean, some things are pretty mysterious, and I know that doesn't happen often, but sometimes, you know, it happened to you, it must be happening yeah. to others. Well, mm-hmm. as our mutual friend Mark D'Antonio, the astronomer and MUFON researcher says, uh, this doesn't happen to scientists until it does. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. So, what are you working on next, Kathy? We're almost out of time, but uh, tell us what's uh, what's what's cooking with you. Well, I'm working on a new book, mm-hmm. and so uh, I want to write about my own experiences. And you know, I've I've kept this information private and quiet for. Uh, you know, since I was 17 years yep. old, and it happened the first time, mm-hmm. so I'm going to write about that, and I'm I'm going to write about the work that I did with Stanton Friedman and our relationship, and some of the things that we did together that that people really aren't aware of. That just sounds wonderful, absolutely. And give us your website one more time, if you would. Okay, it's Kathleen with a K dash Marden M A R D E N dot com. Excellent. Kathy, we're always in touch, and we'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks for a great My pleasure. Okay, Thank you, you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Okay, let's get to our announcements here. And uh, we have, uh, of course, the holidays are um, in the offing here. We consider that they kind of begin with Halloween because that's the first day of the Celtic winter. But uh, we have wrapped up our 2019 lecture season, very, very busy one. And we'll see you on the road next season. Uh, beginning uh, so far with the New England Parafest in Kittery, Maine in April. So you can check out our books, including Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, and Behind the Paranormal 2, Bigfoot, Mothman, and Monsters You've Never Heard of. And now, Dancing Past the Graveyard, Poltergeists, Parallel Worlds, Parasites, and God. I got the, the, the Parallel Worlds and the Parasites messed up, but it, it's it's all in the title. Yeah, it's a Dancing Past so the Graveyard, yeah. So there... 
Ooh, they're available from uh, online retailers and in some stores, but for autographed copies, you can visit online bookstores at behind or on our online bookstore behindtheparanormal.com. You know, when Kathy says she's working on a book based on her her things she didn't want to write about before and never did, that's exactly what this new book, uh, Dancing Past the Graveyard, is. It's my my stuff that I never wanted to write about. Anyway, also at uh, BehindTheParanormal.com, you can find out more about the show, our many cases over the years, public appearances, and how to book us, along with some of our, um, some at least of our 850 free recorded shows, which are being gradually uploaded to uh, the the podcast platforms such as iTunes, uh, Apple Pod, all, all, all the different major ones. Uh, we're back to 2011, and we'll get back to 2008 eventually. But there are um, the they are from our 11 plus years on the air, including our four and a half year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. Uh, there, so, there are also several links to charities that we've adopted on the show, including USA Cares, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, Helping Haiti's Orphans, uh, Youth Mentoring Connections in Los Angeles, the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, and the Sisterhood of Ground Zero. And these are all charities that we know and trust. That's so right. We we know where everything's going. There's we know the people who run them, and it's uh, they're all on the up and up. We take we take great care with that. So uh, Ben, what do we have for next week? So next week uh, that would be Sunday, the November twenty fourth. Uh, we will welcome psychic and paranormal historian Maria D'Andrea uh, to talk about cats and other animals and their traditional relationships to witches. Maybe we should have had that closer to Halloween, given the theme. But I think it's very interesting that. Uh, we have a, a chapter in one of our books on the animals and the paranormal. And there is an interesting connection there. I think we could. Uh, well, the first thing I thought of was familiars. That's you were, yeah, 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 exactly, yeah, yeah. Well, there's also good witches and there are bad witches. I suppose. Are you a good witch or a bad witch? I, know, I, I was, I was making, I was making a little, little, little joke there. Yeah, that's it. Well, witches comes because the term Wicca too uh, means the wise. Mm. You know, people who are wise, particularly in the ways of nature. Or there were like old herbalists that just kind of lived in the woods in like Bohemia yeah. and stuff. Yeah, that's right. True. Okay, so we leave you this afternoon with a thought from 20th century American scientist and author Carl Sagan, author of Contact, the novel. Who are we? We live in an insignificant planet on a, on a, the insignificant planet of a humdrum star lost in a galaxy tucked away in some forgotten corner of a universe in which there are far more galaxies than people. A little bit grim, but uh, something to keep us humble. Well, that's Carl Sagan for you. Well, it is, yeah. (laughs) That's true. So anyway, I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time on Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.